Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, Scott. Hey, James. How is it going? Good. Another week. Well, it's not just another week. You're special right. week. It's special. Well, you're always special, bud. Um, Thanks, Scott. But when- <laughs> What's special this week? Two things. One, we want to thank all of you listeners because we, for the first month, the month of February, we had 11,000 downloads last month. We are just so thrilled to be helping you all with your questions. Please keep sending them in. If you love the work we do, please hit five stars on the like button on podcasts so we can get more people listening. Um, But to thank you, um, we've had a few questions come in that we don't know the answer to. Yes. And instead of faking our way through them and trying to answer questions that really we have no business answering, we thought we'd bring in an expert. Exactly. So today, for the first time ever, we're actually going to have a guest on. And our guest today is Ashley Murphy from Airtate Wealth Strategies. He actually is in Australia right now as we're recording, um, having coffee while we're having beer. Uh, But, you know, teach their own. Ashley, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure to be here. I would have a beer as well. I would be totally down if it was Saturday morning my time, but unfortunately <laughs> it's Tuesday at 9.30, so I just can't swing it, unfortunately. Well, we appreciate you taking this seriously, um, but for, for the listener, uh, what we're doing today is there's a couple questions that have come in about that are, that are international in nature. They're not just about being in the U.S. system. U.S. financial planning, James and I have that all day. You start to go outside the borders. We quickly run into areas that we do not feel comfortable chatting. So here we are with Ashley to have that chat today. And and thank you for being here, sir. Yes, thank you, Ashley. So what I'll do is I'll read the question. This is a question right from a listener. And then Ashley, we will turn it over to you and let you do do your work. And Scott and I will will fill in as we feel best. But uh, Yes, we will be idiot savants. Yes, we have that, no that idea what's happening with these questions. So here's the question. It says, hi, I've been living in the United States for 11 plus years now. Because I'm an immigrant, I did not invest in 401ks until 2015. But again, I was just contributing 6% to get the employer match. I started my financial independence journey a year back. I maxed my 401k, contributed to a Roth IRA, uh, thank you for the wonderful podcast as you inspired millions of listeners. My question is this, how do immigrants strategize investing when there's a real possibility of going back to a home country because of work visa denial? Should we continue to invest in the United States or invest offshore where we would end up retiring to? Thank you. Wow. Ashley? What, what a question. That is just a fantastic question. It brings up so many things. And even though I, I read that a couple times beforehand, it's funny when you read and then reread something, you can you can uh, you can see different things. You know, the more you read it, I'm actually seeing something new on hearing that uh, that question um, 
and that is I think there's there's real uncertainty as to whether this person would end up just going back uh, mm. to their home mm. country without any plans. Like that's just because of the visa denial and um, the 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 administration that we just came through really tightened things up on the immigration side, presented a lot mm. of challenges for a lot of people uh, it, it, from from every country. You know, it started yeah. uh, it started in some corners, but by the end, it it really was everywhere. And I myself, I focused on working with Australian. Uh, Australians in America and Americans in Australia, uh, even they were getting impacted. And I had I had clients that needed to return in order to get a stamp, uh, you know, stamp uh, for, for their visa to, in order to come back. So that's something that I'm I'm seeing anew, and that's that's a different challenge. And I'll I'll try and go there with my answer. But really, the first thing I wanted to mention here is there's a big difference. Let's talk about this world of international versus cross border financial planning. Mm. These are two different terms. So international, I take that to mean really focused on inbound planning and outbound planning. So that obviously we're focused on on clients in the United States. So we're talking about folks that are moving into the US or out of the US. That's really what I think of as when I hear the word uh, international financial planning. And then there's cross-border. Cross-border is extremely specific. Cross-border means you are talking about two different countries, two pairwise, bilateral, whatever term you want to use there, but the interplay of, of how the different treaties line up with those particular countries. And I would put it to you that the cross-border is one of the most specialized areas of financial planning because there's actually three different bodies of knowledge that you need to, to really do that. You've got to be an expert on the US side, the foreign country, and then that the interplay of the two. So that gets really specialized. Anyway, so that's just a brief introduction to, to that dichotomy there, international inbound, outbound versus cross-border planning. Yeah. Um, it's going to be, as I alluded to, the, the treatment, the tax treatment, the benefits, the things to do, to not to do, they're going to be highly country-specific. Why? Because there are three important types of treaties that govern the financial treatment that someone's going to experience in their, their overall financial life. So we've got a the, the main one is the income, the double taxation treaty. So it's, as the name suggests, it's there to prevent uh, folks from getting double taxed, but they are far from perfect or comprehensive treaties. They're, they're oftentimes there's accounts that exist that we commonly use that aren't mentioned anywhere in these treaties. And so we have to rely on, on expert interpretation of private letter rulings and, and other uh, sources to, to try and get a sense as to what the, po- the proper treatment is. Uh, the, the next type of treaty would be a totalization treaty that determines how social security taxes are taxed. That came into existence to prevent the, the globally mobile executive who hops from one country to another who never vests in any system and they get shortchanged mm. as a result of that. So that's the totalization treaty. Uh, it also covers things like Medicare taxes. So if, if you get someone who's moving to the U.S. at retirement, how might they be able to get Medicare if they didn't, in fact, stay in the U.S. for the required number of years to vest in that system? The third type of treaty that, uh, that tends to, to be of concern to older clients that are, that, are, that are thinking about estate planning is the estate tax treaty. So how does that work for, how do estate taxes work across these different countries? And as you've gathered, these are all super duper specific 
and, and, and we really need to know what country someone is in in order to provide them with the, the right advice. So yeah. um, I'm really glad you're here because I would not have known any of that. <laughs> I was doing the same thing. That, that's five minutes of new information that I just learned. And, and what strikes me actually is it is so specific. You know, we, we don't know, is this, is this listener asking this question from Australia, where you are? Is it somewhere in Asia? Is it somewhere? It, it sounds like the first question is, of course, what country are you in? And where are the treaties that that country has with the U.S.? Is that, is that correct? It, it really is. And it comes back to a, 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 a conviction that I've, uh, has only grown stronger uh, in the past couple of months. So I run this masterclass for financial advisors on how to do international inbound, outbound uh, financial planning from a U.S. perspective. And I'm constantly saying that you really need to go to, to and choose a specific country instead of being a generalist. And there are a number of generalist firms out there. And the reason I say that is because if you get a client who is from, and I know that we're not talking direct, this is not a podcast for financial advisors, but if you, if, if, if you were to engage a financial advisor who wasn't a specialist in your country, then they are going to have to learn all of that information just to serve you. And that's yeah. not going to be efficient. That's just not, no one is smart enough to possibly know everything about every country. And so that's where I think it, it makes sense to choose a specialist. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the next thing I was going to say here is the U.S. is quite special in terms of having this citizenship-based taxation system. There's actually only three countries in the world. There's U.S., Eritrea in, in Africa, and recently China has started to, to, to impose a citizenship-based taxation system. So let's talk just for a second about what that means. That means if you're a U.S. tax resident, which you're going to be by virtue of what's called the green card test. So you're either a citizen or a green card holder. Congratulations, you're a US tax resident. Or you, you pass what's called the substantial presence test. You've been in the US for 183 days. This is a really fascinating thing. Uh, just mention it really quickly. If you've ever wondered how it is that illegal immigrants in the US or undocumented, whatever you want to call them, how it is that you'll very occasionally hear that they pay their taxes and why they even bother to pay their taxes if they're not even in the country, you know, on a legal basis anyway. It's because of this substantial presence test. They've been there for 183 days. And so what you find is this really interesting difference between someone's legal status in the US, be it visa, green card, or citizen, and their tax status. And they don't necessarily need to align. So as I just mentioned, you can be undocumented and still be a tax resident and owe taxes hmm. uh so wow. so in the u.s we're always happy for you to pay taxes basically <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's basically what you're saying yeah okay <laughs> we don't care if you've yeah if you've come through the, the passport control or not we'll still tax you the, the way that the, the the other interesting angle or, or effect that this has the citizenship based taxation system is if an American goes overseas, and it doesn't matter if they go to Antarctica or the moon or Austria or Zimbabwe or anywhere in between, they are always a tax resident, always a tax resident. So this has particular implications when someone moves to a lower tax country. There aren't too many of them out there, but let's talk about, say, the Caymans, British Virgin Islands, UAE, 
Hong Kong, although it's, it's still a little bit uncertain how that's going to shape up with Hong Kong. Um, but these are countries that have lower federal taxes than the US. So there's a possibility that an American could go there, be enticed by this seemingly you know, lower tax environment, but then get a rude surprise that, in fact, because they're obligated to file their taxes because they're still an American citizen or possibly a green card holder, uh, they may end up owing something back to the US. Is it going to mm. be the full bill, the full uh, federal tax bill? Probably not, it's, but it's probably going to be something, and that gets mm. complicated. That mm. We go down a rabbit hole talking about what's called the, 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 the foreign tax credit versus the foreign earned income exclusion when we, mm. when we get into that one. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So clearly there's, there's so many details. I think even before this podcast, Scott, and I know there's so many details that go into giving a direct answer. And just in the last five minutes, I've seen there's probably an infinite number more details I don't even know about. But as, as someone is just thinking this from a basic perspective, okay, I'm in the US. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be here forever. I do want to save for retirement, though. Are there any instances where they shouldn't be saving to something like a 401k or wouldn't be allowed to save to something like a 401k or IRA? Or in your experience, is that generally kind of a good thing universally? Or, or how, how should people even think about that, obviously, without knowing too many details? Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's try and and provide some rules of thumb for, for your listeners. I mm-hmm. think it still makes a lot of sense, but there's a caveat that follows that, of course. Look at your mm-hmm. home country tax treaty and how that works. Okay. So I think that in the US we're we're very blessed. We all know that, but it turns out Morningstar actually endorses that. Every two years, they've they've been doing this since 2009, they produce this report, the, the biennial Global Fund Investor Experience Study. And what they do in the study is they compare a whole bunch of different countries. I think there's about 60 different countries. And they, they take this hypothetical question. They say, if you could invest in a mutual fund, not an ETF, in a mutual fund, if you can invest in a mutual fund in any of these 60 countries, what would that experience be like? And they rated across four criteria. They rated across expenses, of course, we'd, we'd be mindful of that, disclosures, the sales environment, sales and distribution environment, and uh, what, what's the fourth one? The, uh, gosh, it's escaping me right now, but there's four different criteria that they, they rank. Mm-hmm. And the US has since the inception of this report come out as number one. Sadly for me in particular, uh, it's been, I believe it's South Korea and Australia now share the top spot with the US, but the devil's in the detail when you look at the costs and the US is still miles ahead in terms of being the lowest cost environment. Oh. The report, I would also put it to, to, to listeners that that report is incomplete because when you begin to break it down and you consider other things such as transaction costs and custodial fees, custodial or platform fees, uh, maybe, maybe uh, Scott or James, you can you can share with us what what fee do you pay to be with your custodian? The the, the typical fee just for the privilege of being on the platform? Zero, zero. Exactly. That's that's what I pay too. I pay zero. In Australia, the typical financial advisor here has to pay about forty basis points, zero point four percent, for the privilege of doing business with that company. So we're not starting from a level. Uh, uh, start line here. Mm. We're starting 
with with many other factors. Also, the, the, yeah. the trading fees are significant in Australia. You're talking about fifty dollars per stock trade. So to put together uh -huh. a diversified portfolio, you're you're into the hundreds of dollars. Maybe Scott James, you could share what what we're paying now for on on trades trading fees. Basically zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so we're in a privileged position, and and we're talking about broad rules of thumb here, and and that's what I would say. The the, the U.S. four hundred one k is obviously four hundred one k is very enormously in how competitive and attractive the investment choices are. But if you've got the ability to defer taxation, uh, put it into a pretty good investment platform, um, then certainly on your way out of the country. Uh, you could roll that to an IRA, and you effectively have the entire, you know, investable universe to uh, to look at there. So yeah. Uh, for, so for, what I'm hearing you from you so far is uh, for this for this gentleman's question, being in the four hundred one k may still make sense because uh, you get the tax defer and and you get to do and and potentially the Roth as well. Uh, so far, you you can get into the details, but. They need to know the tax treaty of the country that they're they would be going home to to compare. Sounds like they need a specialist to do that with. Which if they're That's in Australia, it. they can talk to you. If they're somewhere else, they may need to find another specialist. What are the other though uh, thing points of consideration that you have for answering a question like this? Yeah, the the just quickly, I wanted to, before I do that, I want to say Roths. I'm not crazy about Roths for mm. Americans. If you're a dual citizen or green card holder. Mm. then I'm not crazy about them. And here's why. Yeah. Is when Australia designed its income tax system, they did not call up the IRS and say, hey, guys, how do we design our tax system to work with yours? No mm. country did that. And so they all kind of exist in isolation of each other. So what happens a, a lot of times with Roths is, is clients will fund that or individuals will fund those Roths with after-tax dollars, move abroad, and unfortunately, that foreign jurisdiction looks at this Roth. They say, we don't know what this thing is. doesn't feature anywhere in our tax code, but we're going to tax it like a foreign trust. And so we're going to tax the growth on that, which totally eliminates the whole point of doing a Roth in the first place, right? So yeah. you would have been better off just to fund a you know, taxable you know, brokerage account in, in that instance. Um, but, but getting back to, to the question you had there... Um, I'm sorry. Can you remind? There's me getting up at six and having. Yeah. No, no, it's early for you still. You're still having coffee. So my thought is like you. You'd already mentioned um, international versus cross-border planning and being highly country-specific. That's clear. The fact that there's just so much to know about these different tax treaties and how those are going to be dealt with. We talked about U.S.-based compensation, citizen-based compensation. How basically anywhere we go, uh, we're taxed if we have a U.S. green card or if we're a, a U.S. Uh, uh, resident if we have that tax status. What else would clients want to would would uh you know should listeners be mindful of when they're thinking about these cross border issues? Yeah, I think there's a there's a couple of them. That that the, the the one that comes to mind first is I think there's three types of expats. So you've got your working holiday group, you've got what I call the domicile uncertain, and you've got the permanent movers. So the the working holiday group that could be you know for any number of years, but the key with the working holiday. Is is really two things. It's shorter term, and let's let's say five years is is still short term. The 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 economic gravity of that person's financial life is probably not going to totally move to the U.S. because they know they're going back to their home country. So yeah. someone like that would be wise to really prioritize investing and and keeping their financial center of gravity in the country that they intend on returning to. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of clients I have are domicile and certain. They move to the US, they, they tend to be, let's say, in their late 20s or 30s. They want to see how it goes, wait to meet Mr. and Mrs. Wright, wait for the right promotion or for an opportunity to fall in their lap. And that's going to determine whether they stay or not, as well as, of course, the, the legal process as well as, as to what's involved. But that's really going to determine it. So the key there is flexibility. You know, be wary of making decisions that are going to bind you to the U.S. Uh, or certainly avoid financial products that, that have uh, uh, trailing commissions on them, you know, where you're going to get less than, than 100 cents back in the dollar if you get out mm. of something. That's not an issue, I know, for, for the three of us on this call. We're fee only, so that, that doesn't even come up at all. Buying real estate gets to be tricky. You know, real estate in the U.S. has performed very well, but it's not a clear-cut thing to do if you're only going to be around for a few years, given the transaction costs. As we were just speaking about a minute ago, it's basically free to have an investment account, trade that account in the U.S. Real estate commissions, we're looking at 6-7% transaction mm -hmm. costs, so gigantic transaction costs on real estate. The growth could make up for it, but you're, you're kind of rolling the dice as to whether that happens or not. Anyway, the key with the domicile uncertain is to retain flexibility. And then with the permanent movers, the permanent movers really go through a transition uh, where they're, 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 they're normalizing their financial lives uh, from their home country to the U.S. until eventually, once most everything has been taken care of, then they really look... Um, like domestic clients and you know for all intents and purposes mm. they maybe an inheritance yeah. will come through nana might have left something for them in that foreign country at some point way down the line but that's going to be about it um, yeah. so those are the the three different types of expats and how to uh how to invest depending on on your situation and i've got i've got one more point if if you guys have got uh, a time for this one sure yeah um i i'd say be wary of of PFIC taxation. This is this is one of my favorite uh, bear traps to mention. What's trap? I differentiate between bear traps, uh, pitfalls, and uh, the pitfall. You know, it's it's gonna. You might twist your ankle. You know, be on have it on ice, walk on crutches for a day. But you step on a bear trap, you're gonna lose a leg. You know, it's serious. And and PFIC taxation is very much a bear trap. So this was brought about nineteen. What's that? What is PFIC? What does that stand for? I'm sorry. It stands for a passive foreign investment company. Passive foreign mm. investment company. Got it. And it is a an anti-deferral tax rule that came into existence in the mid-1980s under the guise of levelizing the U.S. managed investment industry. Because what could happen with foreign investments is they didn't need to necessarily declare capital gains or dividends on an annual basis, gave them an advantage versus the U.S. mutual fund business, which, as we know, needs to declare uh, dividends on an annual basis and, and capital gains, depending on what activity they've had within their fund. Um, but really, it didn't just levelize. It actually penalized owning practically any kind of foreign mutual fund, ETF, or even business. Uh, mm. The taxation is nasty, and I mean really nasty. You, it, it, there's one of three different types of treatment you'll get. No need to go into it just here, but mostly people are going to fall into the worst of all these treatments, and that is you get taxed at the highest marginal 
income tax rate that existed at the time you held the PFIC, which currently, as we all know, highest marginal tax rate is 37%. What's long-term capital gains rates? 15%. So you've more than doubled your taxation by owning a foreign uh, passive investment corporation. Mm. So now, just so I understand, if I'm in the U.S. and I go live abroad, you're saying if I, maybe I'm getting so, and maybe I'm going to lose you, but I go live in London for a while, so my wife and I are there. And you're saying basically, me as a U.S. tax resident, do not buy a mutual fund in the U.K. Correct. Right? You you're saying just just keep those U.S. based assets in the U.S. Don't <laughs> buy the the PFIC that you're calling That's it right, right now. You okay. hit the nail on the head. Now, that would be very different if you were a Brit who was in the US on a visa and then returned back to the UK. The visa has since expired. They have no incidence of, of US legal or tax residents any longer. Then they're fine to continue owning their local funds. But, keep, but here's the kicker. What if they own those funds before they move to the US? Mm-hmm. They're still PFIX. So mm-hmm. while they're U.S. tax residents, they'll be taxed as PFIX. Now, I I don't mean to put the fear of God into you know every listener out there about this because <laughs> the way I describe it is it's like driving on Highway 101 in in Northern California. And that is, if you look around, you talk to your friends, and you'd say, "Hey, I was listening to this podcast, and this guy came on with a funny accent I didn't quite recognize, and he was talking to me about this nasty tax." You know, have you heard about that? No, 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 no. I haven't heard about it. Well, it's like driving on Highway 101 and you do the speed of traffic. What's the speed? The speed limit is 65. You're, you're more likely to be pulled over for, for being suspicious if you're doing 65 because the speed of traffic, everyone knows, is 10 miles an hour faster than that. Mm-hmm. What am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say enforcement by the IRS isn't great. It's not the mm. best. They're not known to to catch everyone who owns a PFIC, but it's largely because the IRS, like like any profit-making entity, and, and they don't call it a profit, but they're trying to make money. I mean, that's that's the, the, the business they're in. Yeah, They're going after the big fish, but they also don't want to let the little fish get too passive. So they do enforce it, just not very much on the smaller end of the market. But if, mm. if you've got you know, a seven, eight-figure net worth, then then watch out. You know, this is something that that they will enforce. They'll pay a lot more attention to. Uh, and so it comes back to that that Highway 101. If you're doing the speed of traffic, could you be pulled over and ticketed? Absolutely. You're breaking the law. You're going 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. And that's the point. If you have a PFIC, not, I'm not saying it's likely you're going to get caught, but you can. And and it, it, it could be very unpleasant. Well, yeah. Now, Ashley, one of the things... As we're going through this, and, and thank you again for being on this. There's so much information that I think, especially for a lot of people, this won't be relevant. But for people who are living abroad, who are expats, or who are in this situation, it's hugely relevant. So, so thank you for this. You mentioned that you're, you're part or you're putting together a group of advisors that help people with these types of things. And it is different based upon what country um, this individual might be living in. So do you mind sharing a little bit more about that? If someone's listening to this and says, oh my gosh, there's more than I ever knew. Where can I find help with this? Absolutely. So last year with uh, with my co-founder, Matt Gorin, who's a professor at the American College in Financial Planning, we founded the, the GFP Institute, the Global Financial Planning Institute, with the intention of training advisors on these issues. So we offer 
uh, a masterclass. It, it, it's on its way to becoming a designation. Uh, we offer a masterclass for financial advisors, and we've got a tool uh, that's that's it's going to be released. It'll it'll be live by the time this goes to air. A find an advisor tool, so you can go on and say, you know, I'm based in the U.S. I'm interested in this other country, and find someone that knows out about these 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 issues we've been talking about. Oh, that's so helpful because you know just the work that we do. Uh, I was chatting with someone the other day, and they'd mentioned that when you think about financial planning. There's the simple questions. Can I make a Roth contribution in the US? We can go look that up on Google. Yeah. Then there's the complicated questions. Should I exercise my options now? Right. Well, there's a lot of complexity there, but we can probably figure it out. And then there's the complex, which just deals with iterations that you can't just unwrap with a quick search or a quick read. Uh, and right. clearly, people need help uh, yeah. when it comes to these international issues. So thank you. Yeah, you're you're welcome. And that URL just to say it is GFP, like Global Financial Planet dot institute. And yes, I was surprised to find out that dot institute is in fact a a web suffix. So wow. All right. And we'll put that in the show notes for anyone listening. You can just go to the show notes for this page and gfp.institute. We'll be there. Well, well Ashley, thank you for so much, Ashley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And That's where can people great. find you uh, if if they're so inclined? Oh, yeah. I, so I work with, with Australians in America and Americans in Australia uh, with my firm Arate, which is it's a tough one <laughs> to pronounce, gets them every time. A-R-E-T-E hyphen W-A for wealthaustralia.com. So Arate hyphen W-A.com. And um, I'd be happy to, to answer any questions that, that listeners might have. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Ashley. It's a privilege to be here, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.